I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet is the title of our message. You can see in verse four, it, uh, or in verse five, it does go on to say, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet, keyword before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so what we have uh, tonight is a significant uh, phrase that you need to understand if you haven't seen it before or if you don't know much about it. And it is called the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? And why is it called great and terrible? And what is the significance that something is supposed to happen before this day? And namely, in Malachi 4, it is the appearance of Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now remember that the book of Malachi is at the end of our English Bibles in the Old Testament for a reason, because it's probably the last chronological book prior to the unfolding of the New Testament. From these last words in our English Old Testament, we have 400 years of silence, no prophetic voice, no revelation from God, until John the Baptist is born and then the gospel records begin to unfold in Matthew and Mark and so forth. And so this is important for us to understand the timing of this because the original Elijah the prophet lived long before this, four or five hundred years before this. So Elijah the prophet being named here, what does this mean? Is this something like a, you know, a revisitation of the Elijah that went up in the, you know, in the chariot or in the whirlwind? And uh, we would argue there from what we can see in 2 Kings chapter 2 did not experience a physical death. Remember, he threw his mantle down to Elisha as he was going up in the whirlwind. And so we know that Elijah, the Elijah, the prophet, ministering way back, probably four or five hundred years before this, did not taste physical death, at least as far as we can see in that text. So what, is it, what does it mean that Elijah, the historical Elijah, from what we just read, you know, what we would call prima facie evidence, just you know, taking it at face value, what does this mean that Elijah would return? And then what is this great and terrible day of the Lord? Those are some questions that I will leave you with just for a moment or two because we're going to go in order of the verses. Take a look at verse 4. We just have a few verses tonight, but they're very deep. Now, the, the, the uh, fourth verse of chapter 4 says, Remember the Hebrew word zakar, the law, that's the Torah of Moses, my servant. I think some 40 times Moses is called the servant of God. Even notice the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb. Horeb is an alternate name for Sinai for all Israel. And so one of the final words here to the people of Israel is to remember to remember the law of Moses. We know that the law came through Moses, John 1.17. Grace and truth were realized through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Moses received the law from God on Horeb, which is the holy mountain of God, if you're interested in taking those, Exodus 3 verse 1, but also known as Sinai, uh, God gave the statutes and ordinances to Moses to pass on to the people of Israel. That is called the Torah. The Torah is simply the law. And Torah, and I've pointed this out to you before, but if you never heard this before, it's very insightful. Torah, in the Hebrew picture language, the way Moses would have written it, means to hit the mark. Sin means to miss the mark. And so the people of Israel were being challenged to follow the statutes and ordinances to remember them, which is another way of saying, call them to mind and put them into practice. And to remember the Torah, which Moses received through the mediation of angels, as uh, we, we know. And then it was a command. They were, you know, we're studying the Ten Commandments on Sunday morning, and it was given for all of Israel. Remember the law of Moses. You could say it this way. They're to remember Moses and to be waiting for Elijah in context looking back on the law of Moses and putting it into practice, looking forward to the Torah, or I'm sorry, to the coming of Elijah. And so for us, what do we do as believers? What do we look back on? What is it that we should remember 
in terms of our walk with Jesus Christ, just in rapid fire. 2 Timothy 2.8 says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. We're to remember Jesus Christ, 2 Timothy 2.8. Hebrews 13, 7-9 says, Remember those who led you. These are New Testament letters. Who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the result of their conduct and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. And then Revelation 2, 4, and 5 says, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Three things, that, and there could be more. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember those who led you and imitate their faith. Remember where you've fallen, if you've fallen, and return to your first love. Those are good things for us as believers to remember. We know the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. It doesn't mean that the law has no application to us today, but we remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. We remember the gospel of grace that strengthens us. We remember the word of God, those who are good examples for us to follow them as they follow Christ. And we remember that we are always to keep Jesus as our first love. So Malachi begins the book by pointing out the past. If you flip back to chapter one just for a second, you can take a look at it. It started off in Malachi 1.1 with an oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And remember these words, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have, we, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. God's love for Israel opened the book, and his love for Israel continues. Jacob is another name for Israel. And so if, as we look at the end of the book, we can see now a looking forward. There's going to be a an appearance of one called Elijah. And Israel is to remember the law, to practice the law, and to look forward to the coming of Elijah. Now let me just tell you, this, is, this area, verse 5 of Malachi 4, is an area called eschatology. When you hear eschatology, that simply means the study of the last things or the last days. So some of you have heard about the uh, the events of the tribulation period or the rapture of the church or the resurrection or the return of Jesus Christ. Though there's some debate as to what the day of the Lord actually kind of uh, pinpoints, and I'll tell you what I believe about it. It is all about the study of the last things or the last days. Another way to say the day of the Lord is it's synonymous in my view with the end of the age. What will be the end of the age and the sign of your coming, the disciples asked Jesus. What will be the things that surround the return of Christ when he comes to rescue his bride, his people, his church, pull them out, and then judge an unbelieving world? What will be the events that surround that? Are there any signs to look for? If the day of the Lord is the return of Jesus Christ, and let me just Maybe try to simplify it for a second. Man has had his day. God is going to have a day when he judges the world in righteousness. Acts 17 says he's fixed that day on his calendar. So what will that be like? What should we look for? Is it signless? Is there nothing to look for? Sometimes we will hear teachers say there's no sign that has to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church to, be, to occur. But I believe in one second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't believe in two separate events. That may be a little different for some of you, but that's what I hold to. One day of the Lord, one second coming, where everything happens, where the Lord pulls his church out in rescue, rapture and resurrection, and then pours his wrath on the world. And so this is what's called the day of the Lord. And if indeed that is the day of the Lord, 
then have you ever been told to look for Elijah before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord? I would just say to you, with all due respect to all you know, different perspectives on the end times, and there's plenty of them, right? You know, we know we have different views within uh, what's called premillennialism, that Jesus will appear pre the thousand year reign. There are all millennialists. There are all people are, who are in different camps. But most of you have heard the premillennial view. And that simply means that Jesus will come a second time before his thousand year reign. Premillennial. Millennial means 1,000. Okay? So within that view is the view of the rapture and the resurrection and so forth. My view is that basically when Jesus comes, the church will not be appointed to wrath. We know that that's very clear. But the question is, will the church go through a period of tribulation? Now, many of you have been taught that the church will be spared the tribulation. But I will just say to you, tribulation in Greek simply means trouble or pressure. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, the, the idea of escaping trouble sounds really good to me. Don't get me wrong. But I will tell you that the church has gone through 2,000 years of tribulation. Uh, we've been tribulating in, in other countries. We tribulated in the first century where 11 of the 12 apostles died a martyr's death. The idea that the church would be spared tribulation is something that you really need to try to wrestle with in terms of your view of the end times. Because tribulation simply means trouble. The Greek word is thlipsis. And it, here's the literal word uh, picture. It's of a rock being put on top of the chest of a person being executed of a capital crime where they suffocate under the pressure of a large boulder. I know it's an ugly image, but that is the word flipsis in Greek. And so the question is, will we be spared tribulation? I would say if I have a vote, I would vote for that. But what we know is we will not be spared tribulation in our lives, right? We go through trouble all the time. What we, will, what we do know for sure is we will be spared wrath. And there is a difference between tribulation and wrath. Wrath is the judgment of God on an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world. Tribulation is a guarantee that Jesus gave us <laughs> that we were going to go through. Now, it's going to come at different levels, and there's seasons in different countries where being a Christian is you know, fairly easy, and then there's other places that being a Christian will cost you your life. And so this is where we have to be careful with our views so that we don't just take a Western American mindset and impose it on a text. Or we've only heard one view of the end times. And so we kind of have just settled on that because it does sound pretty good to be out of here. I like the way that that sounds. But I'm just not sure if that's what the Bible teaches. So I believe the day of the Lord will be the return of Christ, the rescue of his people, and then the wrath coming down. If that's true, Malachi 4, 5 says, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. What's your Bible say? Before the coming of that great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah must come first, according to the plain reading of Malachi 4, 5. Now, what does it mean that Elijah must come first? Because the historical Elijah has lived and gone up to be with the Lord. If he didn't physically die, we know he did go, he was taken up to the Lord. So who is it that's supposed to appear given the timeline that we're dealing with? And what are we to make of what we are being told in the text? Jesus was asked an interesting question, and I'm going to take you to the book of Matthew, which is just to your right. So it's the first New Testament book. So you got Malachi, then right to Matthew chapter 17. So let me just set the context for you. Jesus has gone up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's been transfigured before the, the eyes of Peter, James, and John. Um, let's see. Uh, 
look at the beginning of chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, Matthew 17, 2. His face shone like the sun, his garments became white, as white as light. And behold, who's there? Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Now, Jesus had said in verse 28 of chapter 16, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, remember that the Bible has no original chapter breaks. So if you were reading this as a seamless gospel received as just a, you know, a handwritten document to you, you wouldn't have chapter 17. You would just keep reading. So if this has ever confused you, here's the answer to your question. Some of you standing here will not see death until you see the kingdom of God, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. And what happened? He was transfigured. Moses and Elijah appear. Uh, Peter said, Lord, it's good for us to be here, 17.4. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and don't be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. They appear on the mountain they fade into the background, and the only one left is Jesus standing there, as if to say the law and the prophets point to him. The Father confirms it. You have not only two witnesses, but a third witness up in heaven. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Listen to what he has to say, because in him, the scriptures unfold. In the volume of the book, it is written of him to do thy will, O God. And Moses and Elijah fade into the background, and there is Jesus, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And so they were coming down from the mountain, and Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. I would submit to you that those three men, Peter, James, and John, saw the kingdom of God or saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, a preview of coming attractions. What was it a preview of? The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ or the day of the Lord. And remember, we just read that Elijah must come first. Now, the disciples were processing all kinds of theological information. I would have had a thousand questions for Jesus, right? How many questions would you have, you know? Spend a day with Jesus. Ask him whatever you want. Oh, Lord, we don't have enough time to get into all my questions and the layers of questions and the things that I would want to hear you preach on. But notice what happens. So they come down, and his disciples, 10, asked Jesus, why then did the scribes, here's the scholars of the day say that Elijah must come first. And Jesus answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Now at this point in this gospel, if you write down in your notes, if you're taking notes, Matthew 4, verse 12, it says that John the Baptist was taken into custody John spent about a year in a prison, and then what happened to John? He was beheaded. If you read the setting of Matthew chapter 4, you will see that after it says that John was taken into custody, Jesus then calls uh, Peter and Andrew while they're with their dad and taking care of the nets. How could, and, and, and I'm going to walk this out for you in a moment, but if John the Baptist is the singular fulfillment of this prophecy, and that's what some people think, how could he, John, restore all things if he's either in prison or dead? It ain't going to happen. So stick with me. So I think this will help some of you who have wrestled with this theologically. Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Just another point on this. John the Baptist, as effective as he was, did he restore all things? No. 
Now, he prepared a portion of Israel to open their hearts to the Messiah. He did baptize Jesus. He gave witness to Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God, here he comes, who takes away the sin of the world. Then John was taken into custody, and he never got out. And he even had his own questions about Jesus. And then he was beheaded at that drunken party that we read about in Matthew and Mark. So what is Jesus saying? He seems to be saying that there's another Elijah, and maybe it is the actual Elijah who is coming. Did you notice that the actual historical Moses and Elijah just showed up, and they ain't dead? Now, how did Peter know who they were? Shall I build three shelters? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. The answer is quite simple. They had those mixer name tags on. Hello, my name is. Hello, my name is. I do not think those were created at that time in history. What is happening here? Here's what I think is happening. We are told that when we arrive in the kingdom, we will know even as we are known. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know, even as I am fully known. I will know Moses, and Moses apparently will know me. Why? Because we won't have the curse of sin anymore. Because we'll be using the full capacity of our brain power. Because there will be an intimacy in the kingdom to come that will be far beyond what we have known. Sometimes we, we ask the question, and, I, and I, I don't want to make light of it. It's a legitimate question. People hurt, they lose somebody, and they say, will, will I know that person in heaven? Will I know them in the next life? emphatically, yes. You won't even need a name tag. We will know. And that is the beauty of the kingdom to come. Now, for those of you who are married, I wear a ring, and it says once in a lifetime, and, you know, my, my bride and I would, would share moments like, you know, one lifetime is not enough to love you the way I should. But here's the cool thing. Even though marriage doesn't exist in heaven or you know, beyond this life, it appears, we will have a deeper relationship with the kingdom, with the people in the kingdom, with our Lord, with others. I don't know everything that that entails, but I know God does abundantly beyond what I could ask or imagine. And I know he loves to bless. And so I think it's gonna be far beyond what I could imagine. And so in the text, Jesus says Elijah is coming. But look at verse 12. But I say to you that Elijah already came. Now you might, if you were standing there, you might say, well, which is it, Jesus? I think it's both. Elijah is coming, but I say to you, he already came. And they did not recognize him as the messenger, Malachi 3.1, but did to him whatever they wished, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands, the same way John suffered, or at least be killed. Then the disciples understood that Jesus had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, here, I think verse 13 connects directly with verse 12. The Elijah that already came is John the Baptist. Now, let me show you a little bit more on this. Go to Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 1. So we recently at the, uh, when we went through the time of Advent, we studied some of these early chapters of the book of Luke. And uh, we know that Zacharias had an appearance of an angel and the uh, birth of John or the coming miracle birth of John is announced. And uh, this is the words of the angel to Zacharias, Luke 1.14 says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, Luke 1.15. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back 
to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, Messiah, in the what? Spirit and power of Elijah. He will have the mantle of Elijah, if you will. He will come in an Elijah-like ministry, but he's not Elijah. And notice, what will he do? He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, John did that, and we know that Jesus was born somewhere around, if we take our calendar, and this, I don't want to confuse you, but Jesus is born probably between 6 and 4 B.C. When Jesus began his public ministry, he was around 30 years of age. The book, the book of Luke tells us that. So you could just take, you know, let's just say he's born in 4 B.C., and you, you fast forward 30 years, you get to 26 A.D., and then Jesus ministers for three and a half years or so, taking us right to about 30 A.D. And, and this, some of this you know, is debatable by a year or two. But we have pretty good evidence that we're solid to think that Jesus ministered and lived and died and all of that kind of culminated around 30 A.D. Now, for some of our amillennial friends, this is what they argue, and it has some pretty compelling aspects to it. That John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Elijah. He announced the coming of the Messiah. He was killed. The Messiah came. He ministered to his generation. And of course, many Jewish people did turn to the Lord, right? They, they become like, you know, the prodigal son. The hearts of the son turn back to the father. The father to the son, if you will, to use that image. They open their heart to the gospel. What must we do? Repent and get baptized, etc. in the book of Acts, right? 3,000 people come to the Lord, all Jewish, on the day of Pentecost, etc. The church, the early church is largely Jewish. In a matter of 40 years, from those events around 30 AD to 70 AD, here's a very significant marker, what happened in 70 AD. The Roman legions came, and destroyed Jerusalem and razed it, meaning they leveled it to the ground. Did not leave one stone left upon another that was not torn down in fulfillment of Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And so what do we make of that? Well, here's, here's the argument. John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. Jesus ministers. He dies around 30 A.D., he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. A generation is, people argue, 40 years. That takes you to 70 AD. The fall of Jerusalem is the day of the Lord. That's their argument. And you can see why there's at least some merit to that. But here's the thing. I don't think that that fall of Jerusalem is the ultimate day of the Lord but there are, when you study this topic, and I don't have time to get into it tonight, if you study the phrase, the day of the Lord, you will see that there are many day of the Lord's in embryo. What do I mean by that? I mean that they were embryonic first stages of the day of the Lord, pointing to the ultimate fulfillment of the ultimate day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that Elijah... John the Baptist coming in the spirit and power of Elijah was another kind of embryonic fulfillment, a first fulfillment, but there's an ultimate fulfillment to come in an actual Elijah returning. Now, some people may say, that sounds so far-fetched to me. How could the Elijah of old appear in some modern setting ahead of us? Well, I don't know. He appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter knew who he was. Well, yeah, but that's... The Bible, <laughs> right, <laughs> precisely. So before we get a little too smart for our own, whatever, <laughs> let's be careful because, again, we have just read a verse that says Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Now, where does that show up? Well, let's turn to Revelation chapter 11. That's the last book of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 11. Now we see 
this appearance of two witnesses in Revelation 11. And I'm just going to read through the text um, and not give much commentary, but it says 11.3 of Revelation. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Revelation 11.4. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth. I have to tell you that Revelation is written in symbolic and apocalyptic imagery. So we have to be careful in interpreting these passages as well. But they have obviously a power to devour their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky. By the way, when Elijah prayed in his earthly ministry, it didn't rain for three and a half years, which is quite an interesting time frame given the fact that we just saw that uh, in, in terms of their uh, prophesying in verse 3. Another thing that you'll read about Elijah if you study his life is he was able to, able to call fire down from heaven. <laughs> and so two things that Elijah was able to do in his ministry, if you're interested, you can read 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 2, and you'll read about the life and ministry of Elijah. 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings chapter 2, Okay. And so notice the power to shut up the sky that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying, verse 6. They have the power over the waters to turn them to blood. We know Moses did that, to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. You know what city is mystically called Sodom and Egypt? Jerusalem. That's where Jesus was crucified. That's heart-wrenching. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. They will send gifts to one another. This is the only rejoicing we see in the book of Revelation, and it's about two dead prophets. They will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now notice this. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon all those or upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, Revelation gets a little complicated in timing when you read through the different chapters. But Revelation 11 has a uh, statement about uh, the return of the Lord. Notice it comes right after this. It says, The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Right after the two witnesses are killed and taken up to heaven, it says the kingdom of God, notice specifically saying uh, the kingdom of our Lord and in his Christ has been realized or has come. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever Endeavor. Now we do see in Revelation 19 also uh, a uh, imagery of the return of Jesus Christ and so forth. But I hope you can see the picture. Most people that you will hear teach on Revelation 11 think that one of these two witnesses is Elijah. And of course, I am giving you what is considered the futuristic view of Revelation. There are others who would argue that you know much of this has been fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem, but. Um, nonetheless, this is what we have. And so we, we begin to piece together scriptures and we can see 
what God is saying to us. Now, just one other place. Go back to your Old Testament. Go to the book of Joel. So it's going to be a little bit before we, you hit Malachi. A lot of these books are very short. Um, the whole book of Joel has the theme of the day of the Lord. I just want to show you just a few verses here so you can see something else important. Just so you know, when you read your Old Testament, the end of your Old Testament, you have all these short books. They're called the Minor Prophets. Not because their books are less powerful or because they played in the minor leagues. The Minor Prophets are shorter books. Isaiah is a major prophet because he has 66 chapters. The Minor Prophets are very short books. Like if you read Obadiah, it's like I think one chapter. And a lot of them are very short. Now just take a look at Joel 2. So it describes this incredible, scary army, but for the sake of our time, Joel 2.10. Before them, the earthquakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, Joel 2.10, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. Strong is he who carries out his word. Here's our phrase. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? You might want to write down Revelation 6, verse 17 there and look at it later. It's very similar language. Yet even now declares the Lord. What's he say? Return to me with all your heart. And with fasting, weeping, and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a great grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And then skipping all the way down to verse 31. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. What's your Bible say? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Something else that will happen before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, verse 31, will have a cosmic disturbance or a cosmic sign, namely, the sun will be turned into darkness the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Back to Malachi. So for your consideration tonight, if indeed the great and awesome day of the Lord is the second coming of Jesus Christ when we have rescue and wrath, we aren't going to see it until at least two things happen. A cosmic sign before the day of the Lord and Elijah showing up. Those two things, according to what I just read, must occur. You can write this down. I won't go there tonight. But 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us about other things that will occur, including the appearance of one that we call Antichrist. Now, many of you have heard, and again, I want to be as gracious as I can to other views, that I'm not looking for Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. I would agree. However, it says before the day of the Lord comes in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the Antichrist will be revealed. So we have yet a third thing. You guys want to see it? Are you unconvinced? I'm going to show you. Go to 2 Thessalonians. I got, I got to show it to you because otherwise, I don't know if you're going to go home and read it. <laughs> 2 Thessalonians 2. Verse 1, now we request, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, and our gathering together to him, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. I want to let you catch up, but if you look at verse 1, you can see the, the subject matter. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, which is clearly the rapture, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, 2, 2 or be disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us to the effect that what? The day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, context, day of the Lord, 
unless what happens? The apostasy or the falling away comes first and the man of lawlessness, many believe the Antichrist there, is what? Revealed. Two more things to consider. A great apostasy and a revealing of this one called the son of destruction or the man of lawlessness. Now, I just gave you about four things, at least, that would have to occur if there is one singular second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing, though. In the pre-tribulational camp, again, sticking to the premillennial view, their argument is that Jesus appears at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, which is the last seven years before the end of the age. And they say that there's a secret kind of uh, rapture that happens where Christians disappear and nobody knows really what happened to them. And there's all kinds of conjecture about what occurred. And then seven years later, the actual physical second coming occurs. Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I think if you read your Bible in context, you will see that there's one second coming that every eye will see the Lord. His appearance in the sky will be like the lightning that flashes from the east to the west. It won't be, hey, he's out somewhere in the desert or he's in the inner courts of the temple. If they say that to you, don't believe them. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the lightning flash from the east to the west. What does that mean? It means everybody will know Jesus uses an idiom there, Matthew 24. You can read it on your own later. It will be as plain as the nose on your face. You won't have to guess. What happened to all the Christians? And that's when we hear the stories about, you know, the co-worker that you left the gospel track on their desk and you've disappeared and they don't know what happened to you. Maybe aliens stole you, but, but you told them about the rapture one time. So they get the little gospel track down. What were, they, what were they saying about if they all disappeared? Planes are crashing. Clothes are laying on beds. You know, what happened? I don't know. This car will be unmanned should a rapture occur. Well, I will say to you, that the language of the day of the Lord in Revelation 6 is people saying, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, Revelation 6, 15 through 17. For the great day of their wrath has come, same quotation as from Joel, and who is able to stand? They're not wondering what happened. They know his wrath is coming. And right in there, is the rapture of the church. Now, because we're on this path, go to one more place. <laughs> Revelation, go back. Y'all hungry for it? You want to know it? Okay, let me show it to you. Okay, so what I just described to you is in Revelation 6, 12 and following. It's the sixth seal. Jesus breaks it, Revelation 6, 12. Just what Joel said would occur, occurs. Take a look. Revelation 6, 12. He broke the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. It doesn't sound to me like this is any kind of secret thing. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong, every slave, every free man hid himself in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. He, they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the what? Wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. You could say is about to commence and who is able to stand? Now, what you will see in Revelation 7 is the sealing of the 144,000. And then a great multitude who suddenly appear in heaven and a dialogue between John and um, I think it's either, yeah, one of the elders. Look at verse 13, chapter 7. These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of what? The great tribulation, I think they're raptured. They've washed their robes, made them white 
in the blood of the Lamb. It talks about them serving the Lord and being in his tabernacle. And then Revelation 8, 1, the Lamb broke the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. It's a preparatory silence. And you will see what begins to happen as the judgments, the bold judgments commence and the actual wrath of God begins. Are you with me? You're not going to have the wrath until you have the ceiling of the 144,000 and this great multitude suddenly appear in heaven. Then the seventh seal is broken and the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments come. What does that mean? It means that everything that has led up to that point has not been the wrath of God. It's been the wrath of Satan. It's been war, famine, pestilence, death, martyrdom. Martyrdom is not the wrath of God. Faithful Christians who get killed, which is the fifth seal, is not the wrath of God. So I come to my conclusion that the seventh seal is the day of the Lord. The seventh seal is the wrath of God. And therefore, the church hasn't been appointed to wrath. But tribulation? It's another story. Now I know by this time you want a donut and you want to move on. <laughs> you say, Pastor Michael, why are you telling us all of this? Uh, to tell you that be prepared for whatever may come. Don't think that just because you belong to Jesus, life won't be a challenge at times to be a Christian. It's getting a little tougher in America, right? And we, we have enjoyed so many blessings, and, and I don't know the timing of any of this stuff, so I'm just giving to you my view. You can chew on it, wrestle, send Pastor John Nipper an email if you disagree. <laughs> All right, go back to Malachi 4 because we're going to run out of time. So I've given you several things to consider before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. It will be terrible to those who are not believers. And then the final verse of Malachi. This Elijah who appears will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. The hearts of their children to their fathers. Malachi 4.6. Lest I come... And smite the land. Isn't it amazing? The last word of our English Old Testament is curse. Note it. You know what that word is? It's the most scary, ugly word that I think we have in the Hebrew language. It's the word karem. And it means to devote something to destruction. To be devoted to destruction. And that's a bummer. That word is a bummer, but here's the hope that this one who comes will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. Does that mean that when we get closer to the end that families will be a mess? Potentially. Does that mean that this Elijah, if it's the literal Elijah, the prophet coming for what I would say now is a third time, if you count the man of transfiguration, will he do something or will the preaching be such that, and here's the best image I've got for it, that it'll be like the prodigal son who left his father and turned his back, finding himself in the pig pen and coming to his senses and say, I've got to return to my father. I'm going to ask to be like one of his hired servants. And he rehearses the speech, but his father's been waiting for him the whole time. And what does the father do? Hugs him, puts a ring on his finger, a robe around him, throws a party, puts sandals on his feet, and says, this son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. Is that what it means? The hearts of the children returning to their father? Potentially. These are, these are some interesting things to consider. But how about us? You know, one of the things that happens when you get saved is that your heart as one of God's children turns back to your father. In many ways, you come to your senses and you say, Lord, I'm tired of this pig pen. I want to come home. Do you know, there's a lot of runaway kids that won't come home because they're afraid of what their parents might say or do. Uh, 
kids caught up in prostitution and sex trafficking and drug abuse. And they want to come home. And, I, and you've probably seen the stories. And, and they're afraid. And the prodigal son if it, story, if it tells us anything, it says to us, there's a father in heaven who loves you so much. He scans the horizon and just wants you to come to your senses and say, I'm going home. And you might say, to make me one of your hired servants, I'll, I'll sweep, I'll do whatever. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. You're my child. Would you bow your hearts with me? Come home. I've been waiting for you. Thank you, Lord, that you're a seeker of the lost. Thank you in that beautiful story, Jesus, that you told about the prodigal. You gave us a picture of a heavenly father that seeks lost people like us, finds us, calls us. But we can see also in the prodigal, he had to have a moment like a personal epiphany where he just said, I'm sick of this mud pit. I'm sick of eating pig's food. I'm sick of what I've done to myself. I'm going home. And tonight is your chance. If you are watching via live stream, maybe you'll watch this later. If you're here tonight and the Father's been calling you, the hound of heaven has been pursuing you, it's time to come home. And with your head and heart bowed, it's very simple. Lord Jesus, pray it if it's you. I'm sorry for running. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for my heart that's wandered away from you. Please forgive me. I have the mud of my sin to prove how filthy it can be. But would you wash me in the blood of your son? Would you make me white as snow? Would you give me a new start, a new beginning? I believe that Jesus died on that terrible cross for me. I believe he rose from the dead. I trust him and him alone as my Lord, my Savior, my God, my King. I turn away from my sin and I want to follow you, Lord. Save me. Restore me. Lord, for those who are praying, would you just meet them where they are, as I know you will. If you're a prodigal and you've been running from God, maybe you found yourself in that similar spot. I think the words come home tonight would be his heart for you. And then for all the saints, Lord, that are here tonight, those who are watching, really uh, perhaps all over the country, we pray that you would bless them and keep them your beautiful face would shine upon them, that they would have confidence that the text we shared last week is that we will skip about like calves when this day comes. We'll be so filled with joy and excitement at the rapture and the resurrection and God making all things right again. We'll have joy unspeakable. We'll be hopping around with new bodies and seeing people that we read about and people that we've missed for years in the kingdom of God. And you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more death. No more sorrow. No more mourning. No more pain. Thank you for that great hope that we have, Lord. Help us to occupy until you come. Amen.